He is so indispensable. Don't you hate it when people are indispensable? I left UCA 10 years ago and I thought that whole university would just collapse. Thank you. What happened? Oh, they're going strong, better than ever. Thank you, Alex. It, I noticed the parents coming back from dropping their kids, so I knew that it was time to, you know, move on. We're going to slow down now and begin to kind of focus, get ready for worship. Before we do that, um, I want to acknowledge that we have a bunch of special visitors. I think we'll hear more about them in a little bit. The YWAM Ozark DTS group is here today. They have worked really hard for us, y'all. And uh, we're grateful. We're just so glad to have them. Let's have just a moment of silence. And then we're going to ring our bell in honor of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We're going to think about the Trinity. <coughs> then I'm going to lead us in the Nicene Creed, which is the creed to which our church ascribes and then we will have our lesson let's be still for just a moment All right, will you join me in reciting the creed? We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made for us and for our salvation. He came down from heaven, was incarnate of the Virgin, and the Virgin Mary, and became truly human. For our sake he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, he suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven 
and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe, Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is worshiped and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Thank you. Well, good morning again. My name is Norma Farthing. I'm a member of the teaching team here at Grace, and it is a delight and a blessing to have you with us today. We've been talking about lists. Do lists control your life? They do for many of us. My husband, John, the absent-minded professor, keeps a lot of lists. Shopping lists, to-do lists, stuff to order from Amazon lists. Maybe it's because he fears getting more forgetful than he already is. I think he's told you that he calls me darling and sweetheart because he cannot remember my name. <laughs> Hanging on our refrigerator at this very moment is a list of things John needs to do, and number one is find the list. Do you make lists? A list of things to accomplish before you retire. A bucket list of places to visit before you die. A list of birthdays for people who mean a lot to you. Is list making one of those things that stand out about you? At my sister's funeral several years ago, one friend noted that my sister always kept a list of birthdays. No matter the time or space between us, he remembered, I would always get a birthday card from Mickey. Lists help us to remember, to focus our goals, to manage our time, to establish our priorities. Now, make a list of people who would be willing to die for you. Then try a list of those who've already done that. Gets a little harder, right? Make a list of those who hung on a cross and died for you. Those who were raised on the third day those who sit at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, interceding for you. Those who will come again in glory and take you to live with them forever. It won't be a long list. As John told our kids, it's a list of one. Our hope is built on nothing less. 
and nothing other than Jesus Christ our Lord. He is unique. He is supreme. And he is the one and only Lord. He is not one way, a way. He is the way. The reformers call that idea solus Christus, in Christ alone. Salvation, they insisted, is by grace alone, sola gratia, through faith alone, sola fide, in Christ alone, solus Christus. Those who added anything to that list operated outside the parameters of Scripture in violation of sola scriptura. A biblical understanding of Jesus is absolutely essential to the faith by which we are saved, in which we live, and for which we are willing to die. Indeed, virtually every council, synod, commission, gathering, whatever, with its subsequent declaration or affirmation or creed, was focused on this one critical question. Who is Jesus? Augustine is famously credited with saying, in essentials unity and non-essentials liberty and all things charity. Well, let me say emphatically, right up front, nothing is more essential than Jesus. That was true for Christians in the first century, for reformers in the 16th century, and for us in the 21st century. If we get our Christology wrong, we will get everything else wrong. Because everything else is built upon the foundation of Jesus Christ. And if the foundation is compromised, the whole building is compromised. Cornerstone. Capstone. Keystone. These are all words the Bible uses to describe Jesus. And it's clear that they all apply. Y'all look at that picture. Remove any one of those stones, and that edifice will fall. The whole gospel is contained in Christ, John Calvin wrote. To move even a step from Christ means to withdraw oneself from the gospel. Since Christ is the living and express image of the Father, it need not surprise us that he alone is set in front of us as the one who is both the object and the center of our whole faith. Moreover, we must hold that Christ cannot be properly known from anywhere but the scriptures. And if that is so, it follows that the scriptures should be read with the aim of finding Christ in them. John Calvin 
was a French theologian, preacher, pastor, author, who spent most of his life in ministry in Geneva, Switzerland. I think we have our slides confused. Can we go back to Luther and Calvin? There you go. Thank you. Unlike Luther, on the left, Calvin was born into a religious family, but both were brilliant thinkers who studied law and read the Bible in Hebrew and Greek. While Luther was loud, coarse, often vulgar, and teeming with personality, Calvin was painfully shy and introverted to the point of being antisocial. Theologically, both emphasized God's sovereignty, but Calvin, as you probably know, shaped that attribute of God into a unique doctrine we call Calvinism. And while both were prolific writers, Calvin left us with more in print. Countless volumes of Christian apologetics, Bible commentaries, and letters and pamphlets. All of which are R-rated. I hope you can read that. And yes, the Calvin and Calvin and Hobbes, he's our guy. That's our Calvin. Today, as we continue our celebration of the Reformation, our focus is on John Calvin. But our spotlight, as it always must be, is on Jesus Christ, the one, the only. So let's get started. Pray with me, please. Jesus, 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 we fall before you lost in wonder, love, and praise. We invite you. Our hearts are open. Our ears are open. Our eyes are open. We want to encounter you today. Show us yourself in your holy name. Amen. The sun is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. See to it, then, that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. 
In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the circumcision of, uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, that has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among people by which we must be saved. When we read that text from Colossians, we get the feeling that they were already in need of reformation. Although Paul didn't start that church, he had a close relationship with it and was upset when he learned that the Christians there were being seduced by false teachers. From his prison cell in Rome, he wrote them this letter, Colossians. While we can't know for sure what the false teachings were, we can extrapolate from the text and others in the Bible as well as church history that the culprit was Gnosticism, a highly intellectualized and dualistic philosophy which taught that spirit is good and matter evil. If God is spirit, good, he couldn't possibly have created a physical world evil. Nor could Jesus, good, have been flesh and blood because the body, matter, is evil. In short, Gnosticism attacked both the deity and the humanity of Jesus, denying his unique supremacy and total adequacy, both as creator and as Lord and Savior. Talk about your list. Did you notice that list that Paul created to refute Gnosticism? Were you reading the scriptures? And think about the Nicene Creed we just recited, which affirmed both the deity and the humanity of Jesus Christ. God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made. One substance with the Father but also incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary, made a man, crucified under Pontius Pilate, suffered, buried. Only a body can suffer. Only a body can die. Only a body can be buried. The Nicene Creed is a perfect affirmation of Christ's divinity and his humanity. It was written in 325 AD, 
a full millennium before the Reformation began. Apparently, there was a time when the church, capital C, was not divided, when everyone universally, unanimously affirmed the supremacy of Christ. So what happened in the interim? Lists, y'all. List. The church kept adding stuff to the scriptural teaching of Christ alone. It became Christ in confession, Christ in penance, Christ in saints, Christ in good works, Christ in indulgences, and always Christ and some other human being. The Pope, the priest, Mary, some saint or mediator, some interpreter of scripture. Never just Christ alone. The reformers insisted on a return to that scriptural idea. Solus Christus. It was Calvin who first presented Christ as prophet, priest, and king. Those roles cover the gamut of scripture, for, well, Genesis to Revelation, we say, and clarify that Christ and, Je and Christ alone is the revelation of God, the means of our salvation, and the sovereign Lord over all of us. A prophet is someone who reveals God, speaks for God, and communicates to people the truths that God wants them to know. Jesus did that. He called himself a prophet. And the New Testament describes him as a prophet, like Moses. In Exodus 3, God revealed to Moses something he had never told anybody. Not even the patriarchs. His name. Who are you, Moses asked. What's your name? And God didn't stutter. I am, he said. I am. Go to Pharaoh and tell him that I am has sent you. Throughout the Old Testament, prophetic voices announced the coming of I am. Then Jesus burst upon the scene saying stuff like, I am the bread of life. I am the living water. I am the light of the world. I am the resurrection of the life. I am right here in your midst. God made flesh. I am has come. When one of his disciples said, show us the Father, Jesus declared, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Jesus is now the prophetic voice people need to hear. The only voice. Solus Christus. But Jesus is also priest. The perfect mediator between God and us. A mediator is a bridge builder. And Jesus alone spans the distance between heaven and earth. The chasm of sin that separates us from a holy God. In the Old Testament, the priest offered sacrifices to cleanse people of sin and restore their fellowship with God. But those sacrifices were temporary, imperfect. They had to be repeated over and over and over, year after year after year. 
As the book of Hebrews reveals, though, Jesus is a better priest because he offered a better sacrifice. Jesus laid down his own life. He became the sacrifice. He offered that sacrifice once. It was perfect. And he sat down. Powerful stuff. His work was finished for all of eternity. And what he did on earth in his human body, he now does in heaven in his glorified body. He is our great high priest. Even now, interceding with us, uh, with God for us, we need no other. Solus Christus. Finally, Jesus is a king. A king is someone who has authority to rule and reign over us. From his birth, when the Magi came looking for the king of the Jews, until his death, when the Romans nailed that sign up over his cross that said, King of the Jews, he was recognized and identified as a king, and he never denied it. When Pilate asked if he was king of the Jews, Jesus answered, It is as you say. He's a king because he has a kingdom. And he taught his disciples to pray, Thy kingdom come. That phrase, the kingdom of God, occurs 66 times in the New Testament, almost always in the Synoptic Gospels, which are about Jesus. He is the king. And when we get over to the book of Revelation, we find out he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the one, the only. One of these days, people are going to bow down. Every knee will bow. Every tongue confess that he is Jesus Christ to the glory of the Father. Solus Christus. So what does all that mean for us as individuals, as a church? First and foremost, Solus Christus means that we must finally and unequivocally accept the truth that salvation, sanctification, and ultimately glorification are all by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Nothing in my hand I bring simply to the cross I cling If we're still making lists of anything, of things that we must do or need to do or should do to please God and make him love us, we can just stop it right now. If the reformers and the Bible have taught us anything, it is that we are accepted in the beloved in Christ. God loves us because he loves Jesus. When God looks at us, he sees Jesus. He makes no distinction between his begotten child and his adopted children. He is completely satisfied with Jesus as prophet, priest, and king. And when we're in Christ, he is completely satisfied with us.
If you ever really grasp that truth, not just with your brain, but in the core of your being, it will change your life. For all of time and eternity. Second, solus Christus means that we must hear only one voice. Christ-centered preaching and teaching and writing are blessings from God. We need them. But they will not and cannot substitute for the voice of Jesus himself. For that, we have to dig into the Bible. The written word reveals the living word. We have to read it expecting to find Jesus there. We have to take off our 21st century Western glasses and read it in its cultural and historical context. And we have to open our minds and our imaginations to hearing Jesus, seeing Jesus, touching Jesus, tasting Jesus. Y'all, those also refute Gnosticism. And constantly asking, where is Jesus in what I'm reading? What is he saying? How will I respond to him? Jesus himself said that the Holy Spirit would teach us truth about Jesus. Will we sit down with our Bibles and allow him to do that? Finally, solus Christus means that we have only one master in our personal lives and here in this community of faith there can be only one head one cornerstone one Lord Christ is our head apart from him we are nothing but a decapitated body floundering around without ears, eyes, a mouth, or a brain. Worse, if we possess more than one head, we become a grotesque monstrosity and ultimately just scare folks away. There's nothing attractive in a multi-headed body. We want to draw people to Jesus. We got to acknowledge we're his body. He's our head. The Bible says that. And if it's true, then he is our one and only head, and we must serve him and him alone. As Bob Dylan famously noted, y'all knew I wouldn't get through this without Bob Dylan. As Bob Dylan famously noted, you got to serve somebody. Jesus taught that you can't serve two masters. Throughout history, people have often encountered the question, whom will you serve? I'll bet you there aren't many people in this room today who don't have something like this back at home. John and I have one. We want visitors to know whose side we're on. But when the rubber hits the road, do we really mean that? With our group 
think clan mentality our attitudes toward and treatment of other people our acceptance of human teachings as doctrine our claims on Jesus as our personal possession our belief that God somehow cares more about us and blesses more us more than he does other people have we like the Colossians fallen captive to hollow and deceptive philosophy have we lost or have we forgotten the mandate to worship Christ alone have we silently malevolently been sucked into the crowd that screams we have no king but Caesar in the first and second centuries Christians died by the thousands because they would not say the word Caesar is Lord during the Reformation especially later under the radical reformers Christians routinely were martyred for refusing to swear allegiance to a government claiming allegiance to Christ alone and more recently when the Nazis came to power in Germany and citizens were ordered to call Hitler Fuhrer many churches and church leaders just did it but in 1934 risking their reputations and their very lives a group of Christians met in the city of Barman to hammer out their statement of resistance to that the so-called Barman Declaration affirms the unique lordship of Jesus the tenets of the Reformation and the refusal to call Hitler or anybody else Fuhrer we have one Fuhrer they cried and his name is Jesus a lot of them died for that too Solus Christus is perhaps the most unifying of all the Reformation solas and yet that one too invariably became a point of contention over ironically Holy Communion think about the irony of that word communion communion common efforts to unify the reformers fell apart when the German reformer Luther and the Swiss reformers Wingley sat down at the same table but refused to agree on what Jesus meant by eating his flesh and drinking his blood well that controversy was not new those words were no sooner out of the mouth of Jesus Christ when people threw up their hands and said that's too hard we're out of here saddened Jesus turned to the handful left and asked one of the most poignant questions in all of the Bible will you also go away Lord 
To whom shall we go? Peter answered. You alone have the words of life. Yep, that Peter. That Peter. The one who often got it wrong. The one who denied his Lord. The one who failed miserably in his faith. The one who knew God didn't discriminate against people, but who discriminated against them himself. Maybe you can identify with Peter. I hope so. Because the night Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, Peter was there. That Peter. Thomas the doubter. Judas the betrayer. Motley crew. They were all there. Jesus didn't ask any of them to leave them. Jesus invites everybody to his table. There is no list of qualifications for a warm welcome here. The only criterion is that you want to receive what Christ wants to give. What he alone can give, namely himself. As we remember how he broke the bread, gave it to his disciples and said, eat, this is my body that was broken for you. Likewise, took the cup. This is the, my blood that was shed for you. Drink it in remembrance of me. Thank you for being here. Let's celebrate communion. Communion. Will you come?